I'm Andrew Weinrich, and I'm here with Jeremy Levy. This is Deciding by Data. Each week, we will interview a leader in a different space and explore with them how they have leveraged data and analytics to build and transform their organization, bringing you the inside story behind the growth of successful data-driven businesses. Our guest today is Matt Turk, Managing Director at FirstMark Capital, the largest early-stage investment capital firm in New York with $1.6 billion under management. Matt focuses on investments in big data, AI, and machine learning. On top of that, he organizes two monthly events about data. Data Driven NYC is one of the largest AI and big data event series in the country. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'd love if we could start two areas. One is, do I understand it correctly that even though Firstmark is venture capital firm focused on early stage investing based out of New York, your particular focus is identifying companies that are in these three categories? The way it works is that different partners tend to have different majors, if you want. One of my key majors is indeed the world of data, broadly defined, which uh, the way I think about it includes any data-driven business, any uh, business that has to do with big data, data infrastructure, data science, and artificial intelligence. When you say any business that's driven by data, what, what businesses today are not driven by data? Surprisingly, uh, a large number. Uh, so it's uh, tempting for us in the tech community to assume that because we are in a world of tech and analytics and we geek out about those topics, that the rest of the world is very much on board with this. The paradox is that um, for us in the tech community, the term big data, for example, is starting to feel very much three years ago or five years ago even. Uh, you know, it's sort of not cool anymore to say, oh, I'm all about big data. Well, well, tell us what that, help us define that term for our audience. What does the term big data refer to? Yeah, absolutely. But just to finish that other thought quickly, I think that the, the rest of the world in many ways is just starting to catch on to the fact that big data is a thing and that it actually could have a completely transformative effect on their business. So the, the term big data is one of those uh, buzzwords that's almost by definition imperfect and almost by definition a term that means something for uh, a couple of years and then becomes pretty much devoid of meaning. But the, the, the fundamental idea is that uh, we are uh, all exposed to amounts of data that are many, many, many folds larger than any uh, data sets that the previous generations were exposed to and that there is a wealth of potential knowledge, insights, and actions that you can derive from that massive amount of information. So, in other words, everything becomes instrumented. So, of course, uh, anything that's online has a data exhaust, but increasingly, and, uh, you know, the whole separate but very related trend of the Internet of Things participates in that, but increasingly the rest of the world uh, starts emitting data, the rest of the physical world. So big data describes that phenomenon and more specifically describes a set of technologies that essentially started, call it, 10 years ago uh, that uh, have the ability to harness uh, the, those massive amounts of data and increasingly extract meaning from the data. When we talk about big data in healthcare or big data abstracted from devices in the home or big data in a automobile context, 
Does that definition suggest that there's a certain amount of data, that there's a certain continuity in the gathering of the data? Maybe you can get more granular so people can get a sense of, if I'm analyzing cancer patients, how much data do I need to gather before it's big data? At what point does it go from medium data to big data? Or is it even a function of volume at this point? Yeah, so uh, look, there's two, two separate concepts, right? There's the concept of big data. So like just to rewind to a few years ago, there was this concept of, uh, of three Vs, right? Volume, variety, and velocity, right? So you had to have the three Vs to be uh, considered a big data. And, uh, you know, indeed, for a number of specific tasks, and I guess we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, but for a number of specific tasks, uh, including anything where machine learning and AI is involved, having very large amounts of data is at this stage of the game essential. So that's that's one concept. But there is another concept, which is that uh, you can do plenty of interesting things with smaller data sets, and in particular, very vertically specialized, clean and usable data sets. And uh, if you are in one of the industries that you mentioned, uh, you can absolutely do great things with fairly basic analytics. So it's not big data for the sake of big data. You can do plenty of things with smaller data set. However, to, to jump back to the, to the first point, if you want to cure cancer, or if you want even to detect cancer, let's say you want to do that through radiology, which is a very current topic, then you need to have a, a very large amount of radiology images so that you can run AI, specifically deep learning algorithms on those images so that essentially you see so many different patterns that you train the machine to recognize those patterns and then enable the machine to detect the less immediately noticeable patterns and the rarer forms so for that, you need tons of data. So the, the idea is that if someone is generating cancerous cells, that would manifest itself in a way that heretofore was undetectable by the human eye. But if we were able to gather the collective data of millions and millions of people who had some progression of, I don't know whether we're talking about ultrasounds or sonograms or MRIs, but we would be able to recognize patterns and those patterns could be used to definitively suggest whether someone is on their way to developing a disease. Is that is that the big big data scenario you just described? Yes, that's essentially it. So the various forms that you described, the hot topic of the moment where you see a lot of startups focusing on is, again, the, the concept of, of images. Um, and uh, so specifically radiology where... Uh, you can, if you if you see enough images, you can train your deep learning uh, algorithms, uh, which is a form of AI that works particularly well on, on images, to recognize patterns, uh, but most importantly, to be able to spot uh, rarer forms of diseases. So uh, th think about it that way. If you're a doctor, radiologist, uh, you're going to be exposed to only so many different cases in your life. Uh, what you're essentially saying is that if you pull all the images together uh, that, you know, dozens and dozens and hundreds of radiologists will see in their lifetime, you basically train 
the software to recognize not just uh, the more common and obvious images and forms of disease, uh, but you expose the machine to all the, the very rare form of disease that almost by definition a radi radiologist would only see a handful of times in their career. Sounds like big data is a prerequisite, really, for a lot of those other applications of the technology. Just to take a step back for a second, what is the state of big data today within the marketplace? Are we fully deployed using the sense that, um, you know, if we used to use typewriters, now we use word processors and Microsoft Word and everyone uses Microsoft Word today. Where are we on that life cycle when we talk about big data? I think we are in the early maturity of the market, meaning that if you follow the classic uh, adoption cycle, the pioneers and the early majority have started not only uh, trying out uh, the technology, but actually uh, going through uh, actual deployments. Uh, and then there is, uh, you know, somewhere, and I, and I forget the exact classification, but the the, the late majority um, is starting to look at it and try it out. So, in other words, uh, if you think of the beginning of this whole big data phenomenon as uh, when uh, essentially, Hadoop started appearing on the scene, which was, I think, 2006 or 2007. Basically, you had a few years where Hadoop became the, the buzzwords in conferences, and then the CIOs would send uh, some people to the data conferences, and then uh, those people would come back and say, we absolutely must try this uh, Hadoop thing. And then the CIO, to look good in front of their board, would say, okay, of course, we have our Hadoop, uh, Hadoop pilot. And then uh, that whole you know phenomenon uh, happened you know, pretty much until 2011, 2012, if you want, and then 2012, 2013, and, you know, the years may not be perfectly exact, but that was a time when some of these early people actually started doing those, you know, those pilot, those early departmental deployments. And it's, we, paradoxically, we, we now in 2017, just getting in the phase where even those early adopters are truly in production with those big data technologies. And of course, I'm not talking about the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, because those are the people that actually developed those technologies in, in the first place. So those people have been in production for a very long time. What I'm talking about is sort of the Fortune 1000 companies. So there's a group of early uh, adopters that, again, started uh, piloting the technologies a few years ago, then doing those departmental deployments and are just now starting to reap the benefits of all those early efforts. There's a whole different group of people that are essentially just starting to dip their toes in the water. I think there was a, a large number of people in particular that were waiting to see if the market was going to consolidate that we're waiting to see if an IBM, for example, was going to come with a one-stop shop where all the various parts of big data were going to be provided by one single vendor. I think um, at this stage of the game, it's becoming clear that that's not going to be the case, at least not for the immediate future. Uh, therefore, uh, the later majority is now in full experimentation mode around, around big data. It sounds like what you're talking about really is sort of the abstraction of the complexity around these technologies. Does that mean that's things like being in the cloud, so to speak, is a prerequisite for beginning to be to, to, to be deploying a big data solution? Uh, interestingly, not. So those are the, the, the cloud aspect and the big data aspect are, are two very related concepts, uh, but um, they're not always related. 
In fact, I would say that most of the big data technologies uh, that uh, you hear people talk about these days are being deployed uh, in an on-prem model as opposed to in the cloud in the world of Fortune 1000 companies, right, where uh, there are still a bunch of concerns around security in the cloud and other reasons uh, why uh, those Fortune 1000 companies don't want to deploy in the cloud. However, there is a very strong trend uh, that is, you know, probably a decade-long trend around even Fortune 1000 companies moving to the cloud. On the other hand, you see a lot of the big cloud companies uh, providing uh, all the core elements of the big data stack, but increasingly also the machine learning and AI stack in the cloud. So if you look at uh, AWS, they have pretty much all the core pieces that you need to be able to do uh, big data in the cloud, whether that's you know the database system, the warehouse, um, anything you need. Uh, but also have all the deep learning algorithms and the machine learning and the computer vision and everything that you need to be able to do AI in the cloud. Matt, we've talked a couple times about machine learning and AI, artificial intelligence, and it sounds like the big data is the precursor to those, but I'd love it if you define those terms. The way to think about the articulation between both of those concepts is big data is essentially the, the pipes. So big data is really the set of technology that enables you to process very large amounts of data at scale cheaply and efficiently. And then the other part, which is machine learning and AI, is really what enables you to extract meaning and intelligence and in the form, for example, of automation with all that data that you were able to process. Well, maybe so, you can distinguish between machine learning and artificial intelligence. Sure. So it's very simple. Machine learning is a subpart of AI. AI is a broader term. There are different forms of AI that do not involve machine learning. But at this stage, for most cases, they are used pretty much interchangeably and, and probably wrongly so. But all the excitement around AI that you know has already been happening over the last couple of years has had to do with, with machine learning. So in the example we were talking about before, we've got all of these different MRIs of a organ progressing over time from millions of patients. The aggregation of that data, that's the big data component that you were talking about. And the machine learning, the subset of AI, which is being used interchangeably, is the intelligence I think you're describing that's applied against that to predict that you are a high likelihood candidate for progressing to cancer. Uh, yes, absolutely. Or in, uh, you know, in another case, you're in any kind of uh, Fortune 1000 company, you want to figure out who among all your customers are the people who are most likely to churn, which is a very standard use case. So the, the big data part would be, hey, let's gather all the customer data that we have, whether that is customer data that comes from uh, clickstream, mobile, web, people registering, email, whatever channel you can you can think of. Let's let's get all that data. Let's clean it up. Let's organize it in a way that it lends itself to analysis. All of this is big data. 
and then the, the the minute you start analyzing the data and trying to extract meaning from the data in that case um, you know trying to predict who among your customers are going to churn then you start getting into the analytics and data science part um, of the world and machine learning and AI is a part of this. So data scientists uh, spend a lot of time playing around with machine learning models. So that's not all uh, of what they do, uh, but it's it's a it's a big part. And that's that's when the uh, articulation is. So the 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 way I characterize it quite quite often is that I say big data provides the pipes and AI provides the smarts. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear Matt's vision for the future of AI and big data. He'll tell us why he's not as concerned as Elon Musk about a war powered by AI. Stay tuned. This podcast is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that allows business users to optimize acquisition, engagement, and retention. Indicative enables marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touch points without the need to rely on data scientists. To learn more, go to indicative.com or email info at indicative.com. Welcome back to Deciding by Data. We're here with Matt Turk, Managing Director at FirstMark Capital. Matt and I were just talking about the differences between big data, machine learning, and AI. Now we'll take a look towards the future of these technologies. Okay, so let's do this. I love the opportunity to talk with you and dream about how certain verticals are going to be totally transformed because of big data and AI. So we just talked about healthcare. We give actually just one example of healthcare. We can predict someone will progress to develop a certain disease. In the case of subscription businesses, we talked about how media companies or any subscription business could predict who's going to churn. Other predictions, other verticals, you know, I'd love to talk about what is the future with ML and AI for the automotive industry. I'd also like to talk about what does it mean for the future of war? And we've been hearing a lot from Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, but Elon Musk talking about the dangers of AI. But maybe we can start with automotive, any other verticals that you think it would be exciting if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening to this and you want to imagine what the future looks like because of these technologies. Here's Matt Turk making some predictions about what the future looks like, and then we can turn to Musk and Zuckerberg. Yeah, so, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think it is um, probably one of the most exciting times ever to be starting a company because you are now able to take pretty much any kind of industry and apply this now increasingly robust set of technologies around big data and machine learning to build a product or company that is completely transformative. So I think we are at that inflection point where a whole range of opportunities are open around machine learning and AI, whatever you call it, applications. I think a lot of the hard work around infrastructure has been done. And now uh, is the time when you can start dreaming, hey, what if we took this industry and that problem and applied big data and, but what, but what and, and machine learning? What industries excite you? Are you excited about agriculture? People have an idea all of a sudden 
uh, you know, there's a different way to plant based on big data. Are you excited about manufacturing? Are you excited about space? What excites you? I'm, I'm excited about it all, which sounds like a possibly glib um, answer, but I think that's that's actually the reality of it. Um, I think that there is a whole aspect, and you know, if that's part of the question, we can certainly talk about the futuristic aspects. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, space, genetic engineering, precision medicine, all of this is completely machine learning and AI driven, the future of it. And that's increasingly exciting. But as an investor, uh, and I certainly love all of this, and I certainly want to invest in all of this. And, you know, First Mark has investments in self-driving vehicles and all of the things. At the same time, I think um, equally interesting from an investment perspective and from um, an entrepreneurial perspective, if you were to start a company, this is the fact that there is a whole range of much more pedestrian, but also very concrete applications of machine learning and, and big data that are happening right now. So, for example, we have a company in the portfolio called HyperScience that applies machine learning to the otherwise incredibly uh, non-glamorous world of back-office automation. Uh, but basically what that means is that they enable very large customers, whether they are, they are financial services or government or uh, you know, that type of, of, of size of um, enterprises, they enable them to go through massive amounts of documents and images and scan forms and extract information and knowledge and enable them to process and, and organize th those documents. It's a prime example of a super dusty area that nobody really wants to touch. It in some ways tedious and complicated and everything takes time. But that's one area where AI uh, has a 10x, maybe 100x impact on how quickly and efficiently you can make things work once you use AI. That's one example. I think the world of work uh, is completely changing as well uh, with machine learning and AI. Uh, again, another example uh, in our portfolio, which I'm bringing up because I'm, I'm, I happen to be very familiar with it, um, is this New York-based company X.AI, uh, which is taking a very specific problem, which is scheduling meetings and applying very significant amounts of AI to it. And what the product helps you do is essentially schedule meetings with a AI-powered digital assistant. So if you want to schedule a meeting, you just copy the assistant the way you would copy a human assistant. And then the assistant, which you know, in the non-branded version of the product is Amy at X.AI or Android X.AI, will take over and enable you to schedule a meeting. Uh, that is a you know another example of taking a very sort of painful, tedious task that everybody experiences, especially as we all schedule on more and more meetings, and having AI take over. So AI will have an impact on the world of work as well. So in a very sort of relatable daily way. Let me ask you a very personal question. A lot of these sound like fantastic business opportunities. For example, the personal assistant. I, I, I love that business. But I'm curious from a personal perspective, you're, you're sitting in a place where 
you have expertise about the future of uh, and the promise of AI and big data. And it, it sounds like AI and big data offers the promise of curing many of the world's problems, not just increasing productivity, but curing disease, improving output of agriculture, improving education for people that don't have it. Some might argue, you know, big data can be used to solve poverty. I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether you think of part of your mission to accelerate entrepreneurs or uh, that are in this big data space where you really have an appreciation of, of the dynamics or whether you think about it in the context of maybe this is an opportunity to cure many of the world's ills. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, to be to be clear, we have a number of companies in the portfolio that have not only a great business, uh, but also have a very positive impact on the on on the world. And you mentioned education, just as a you know, as an example, we were early investors in a company called Newton, uh, which pioneers the the whole concept of adaptive learning, that basically uses big data to customize on the fly. Uh, educational material to the individual learning preferences of of each learner. That's one example. So, you know, that's certainly something we take into account and we think there's going to be plenty of opportunities for businesses that both do very well for their investors and founders from a financial perspective, but also have a very positive impact on the world. Why is Elon Musk so afraid of artificial intelligence? Maybe you can characterize his fears and, and for those people that aren't familiar with this public discussion he's been engaging in. Maybe you can catch us up. You know, I, I think Elon Musk is a obviously incredibly visionary entrepreneur who lives in a future that a lot of us uh, think as complete science fiction, which is part of his genius. I think the whole concept of space, of living on Mars and that type of thing that, uh, you know, to many of us, that's what we go to the movies to see thing for him that's very much something that he thinks about as a sort of reality that can be achieved in his lifetime, which is, you know, in many ways, the trait of geniuses. And he has this incredible ability to take that vision that is decades, potentially centuries out and, and make it a reality. I think when he thinks about AI, he thinks about what AI could be in that very far out future and then rewinds it very quickly to today's reality. So in other words, he lives in a version of the future that from my perspective feels very, very far away. Um, His perspective is that AI, the logical progression of AI, if not legislated against, is the governments will ultimately create the Terminator, right? P Putin just spoke about the future of artificial intelligence. He said the future belongs to those that develop artificial intelligence and then left us a little bit wondering what was the context of that? Is the context of that in the things we're talking about, healthcare? Is it is part of the context of that war. You know, I'd love for you to talk about Putin and Musk in this context of the Terminator. I think it's a fundamentally important discussion. I think we all need to be extremely cognizant and aware of the potential risks. I think it's important to start the conversation early. At the same time, my perspective from the trenches as someone who spends a lot of time with companies that are actually trying to build uh, machine learning and AI is that we're very, very, very far from 
any kind of Skynet uh, type scenario. I think we are in a, at the moment and at least for the next few years in a scenario where extremely smart people are feeling incredibly challenged making small bits of AI truly work. You know, whether that's, uh, again, back office automation or certain scientific discovery or a digital assistant. At this stage, it takes uh, enormous efforts by people who are incredibly smart and spend a lot of time with a lot of venture capital money to do anything that is remotely real uh, with, with AI. So, uh, you know, I, I would not get carried away uh, about global artificial intelligence that would take over the world. I mean, I, from my perspective, it feels very, very far away. It could accelerate, uh, but we're really not there. But the idea would be to build robots that could increase productivity across a whole host of industries using AI. It's just that you think in the context of, of building soldiers, when Putin and Musk say whoever masters AI will run the world, you think that particular context is the wrong one or is just too far into the distance to be concerned with? No, look, it, it, it sort of depends. Again, that's the difficulty of this term AI, right, which is that uh, there's that constant dance between AI in the future, Terminator, that type of thing, and, and the reality of AI today. And those are two very different things. So short, long term, uh, all of this is absolutely a threat. I think today... There is a level of threat uh, that absolutely needs to be thought through and, and considered and protected against, but that's not the Terminator threat. So the current threat, you know, in the context of war is um, everything that uh, Russia has been doing, which is by now fairly well documented, in particular using Ukraine as a lab for all sorts of uh, cyber terrorist attacks, you know, all, all of this is incredibly scary. And uh, by all reports, all accounts, uh, the Russians are becoming, incre you know, incredibly strong at it. AI is involved in some of that, but AI is just the next step in the usual cat and mouse game uh, of security where, you know, one party um, starts arming up, the opposing party starts arming up as well to defend and then take over the next be stronger to respond. So AI is, is part of this, but that's not Skynet type AI uh, yet, and it's not going to be for, for a long time. So again, super important debate, but uh, I would uh, relax quite a bit for now. You know, it's Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a different animal, right? He's, uh, he's a incredible, like once in a generation or more type entrepreneur. He has the luxury to talk about that type of thing. If somebody's going to talk about the dangers um, in the future, that should be Elon Musk. He plays a, a very important role. I think for the rest of us, uh, we can you know, collectively focus on just uh, making whatever product we're trying to build in you know, addressing a very narrow problem with AI, just focusing on, on making that work, and that is hard enough. Matt, I've greatly enjoyed this discussion. For those that want to follow, I have a blog at mattturk.com. On Twitter, you're at Matt Turk. Any other data points I should that, That's provide? great. If um, anyone uh, is interested in learning more about uh, this world, if they happen to be in New York, they could come attend our data-driven NYC events. Uh, all the videos from Data Driven NYC are online, uh, both on the FirstMark website at firstmarkcap.com, but also on YouTube. So if you go on YouTube and just search for Data Driven NYC, you'll see a 
fairly significant library of uh, videos now where we've uh, interviewed a lot of the top CEOs and CTOs of many of the most interesting startups in the general big data and the AI space. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Deciding by Data. I'm Andrew Weinrich. My co-host is Jeremy Levy. This podcast was produced and edited by Lauren Feiner and Esmeralda Martinez. Our music is by Chris Zabriskie. New episodes are released each week. Tune in next week when we speak with Mark Josephson, CEO of Bitly. You probably know Bitly as those short links that you click on Twitter. But Mark tells us how Bitly uses links to provide data to thousands of brand customers. This is Deciding by Data. This podcast is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that allows business users to optimize acquisition, engagement, and retention. Indicative enables marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touch points. For more episodes of Deciding by Data, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app, or visit decidingbydata.com to subscribe to our newsletter. If you like what you hear, don't forget to leave a review or follow us on Twitter at Deciding by Data.